Well, we're in uh, Isaiah chapter 7 tonight. Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to be talking about God's judgment for a few weeks on his people for their stubbornness in not trusting him and following him. He had warned them for centuries to believe, and they refused. And so they served idols and walked away in their arrogance from him. Here are my notes. You don't want me to forget my notes. (laughs) So the title of the message this evening is Faith in God's Control. As believers, if he's not in control of all, then he's not in control at all. If he's not a providential, sovereign God over every detail, not only in the universe, but in our lives, particularly right now, if he's not in total control over everything in your life right now, that includes what's happened to you or what's not happened to you, then he's not in control at all. And that's what he wants us to hear tonight. We're going to look at the life of a king who God had placed in a very honorable role, but he chose to disbelieve and not follow or trust God's lead at all, and it was disastrous. Faith has nothing to do with feelings. In the final analysis, if it did, we'd have faith one day and not the next. And the Lord would appear to be fickle. Sometimes we're sure, sometimes we're not sure. And of course, you're describing my life right now, you might think, but <laughs> it's not based on feelings. It's based on something much more reliable than our feelings. It's based on truth. And fact, it's based on the scriptures, it's based on what we know about the Lord and what he's done in the Old and New Testament, and more importantly, what he's done in our own life. We know that he's real. What he says is true. And if you're like me, that's a challenge sometimes because, well, I'm kind of an emotional person. I'm feeling-oriented. I mean, I can be very, very logical, too, but sometimes my feelings get ahead of me. But there's no one else like me in this room tonight. And so the Lord is continually putting before me, it's not about how you feel, Bill. It's about who I am and what I've done and will continue to do. A good example of this uh, idea of faith being about fact, not feelings, is uh, years ago, maybe 10, JFK Jr., you remember here, him, John Fitzgerald Kennedy's son, um, was flying across a murky body of water to go to a wedding on the East Coast. He had his wife with him and uh, her sister. In granite, he, the word came out that he wasn't as um, versed in 
piloting on every level that he probably should have been. He still flew quite a bit. Yet he was flying across the body of water and the fog was so thick that he just couldn't navigate it correctly. And because the plane that crashed and the water hit at such a force, the experts believe that he probably had a case of vertigo. Now, vertigo is a symptom whereby um, our feelings tell us one thing, and they're very convincing. In his case, he thought he was ascending when he was really descending. And that's why his, the plane hit at such a force, was immediately demolished. Well, the interesting thing about this is that the instrument panel in the cockpit that the pilots govern their decisions on, and of course a lot of it's automated now, so sometimes they can fly a plane without even trying to fly it, but in many, many cases they still need the pilot. The instrument panel never lies. No matter how you feel, it doesn't lie. If the panel says you need to accelerate and ascend, that's what you need to do. If it means that you need to drop down several hundred feet or yards or even a mile, you do that. The key is, according to the experts, and this is a sad story, he probably went with what he sensed and felt rather than what the truth of the panel was saying. Sometimes God's word tells us to do things that cut across the grain of our desires and of what we think to be true. And we're going to find that tonight in this this king. So he wants us to continue to trust him, despite how we feel despite what we want, even despite what we know. He wants to go, he wants us to go with faith, our faith in what he can do. Um, if you turn to just chapter 6 real quick, I just want to end with the last couple verses. I, we talked last week about Isaiah having a vision of the Lord high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple, and he was very, very powerful. And he gave an announcement to Isaiah that the days of blessing for his people, the day of prosperity um, and wealth, and even a spiritual season in their life, was over. He was done, finally done, with the rebellion of his people. We've talked about this all the time. That there is a time. It was, that's an example right there. We'll see another example of it when Christ comes back. Where his grace and his mercy and his patience runs out. And when it runs out, it's out. Like there's no more second chances. And so it ran out for his people. The people that Isaiah prophesied to. Probably in the 8th century BC. It finally ran out. 
And so Isaiah chapter 6 was a very stern um, picture of what the judgment is there for. Tonight we're going to see what it kind of looked like. But what it was there for, he had given them mercy and grace after grace after grace through the years. And loved them. We talked last week about he saw Israel as his bride. He's the groom. Israel's the bride. The New Testament still says that. The church is the bride of Christ. He's our groom. We're the bride. He's very jealous over us and our loyalty and our love for him. And... uh as I mentioned last week, he, he even made a reference that he carried, as a groom carries his bride across the threshold, so he carried his bride, his chosen people, out of the bondage of Egypt into the wilderness to go to the promised land. And he, on several occasions told them that they were becoming very unfaithful. I mean, I think they were only in the desert, uh, the wilderness, a month when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments while he was up there for 30 days or so. Um, when he came down, they were worshiping a golden calf already. They took the gold that God allowed them to have from the Egyptians as they were making their way out of Egypt. They were to take that gold and put it into a tabernacle for the glory of God. And instead, they build a golden calf because they don't want to wait anymore. And they wanted to worship something, some object. And that was just one of the first things that he called them out on. And it was a month after he delivered them from Egypt. Allowed them to cross the Red Sea. Through the waves of the Red Sea on top of the Egyptian army, just like Cecil B. DeMille's pictured in the Ten Commandments. Powerful scene. And so now, it's time that he starts to describe what they're going to go through as a rebellious people. But as we left off last time, if you'll look in chapter 6, the very last two verses, he's talking about total destruction over Judah, which was southern Israel, and northern Israel was Israel. And uh, at the very end of all of this harsh language, verse 13, he says, and though a tenth remain in it, that means 10% of his people would remain in the land, his land. The other 90% were carried off into exile to Babylon. And that's the way dis God disciplined his people in those days. He would, he would raise up an enemy of Israel, and they would attack his people and carry them off into exile. Happened a couple times with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And so what he's saying is, although this seems very, very bleak and your land will be destroyed and burned over and over again, torched the buildings, the farmland, the people, there will be a tenth that remains in the land. Let's read on. 
He says, although a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. And he says, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it's felled, the holy seed is its stump. In other words, what he's saying is, even though the entire land will be like burnt sticks, 90% of the inhabitants are gone or dead. There's still going to be 10% of his people, and it's out of those people that a new remnant of God's people will grow. And he uses a stump of the terebinth tree. And apparently a terebinth tree can be lifted out of the ground and fallen and burned. But in time, a little green shoot pops up out of it as new life and hope. And so the Lord's always done this. He talks about Judgment, and right after that he talks about mercy and grace. So he leaves off with hope, and then we go back to chapter 7. Let's look at verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, so he was Uzziah's grandson. He was the king of Judah. Ahaz was the king of Judah. Reason, the king of Syria, and by the way, Syria is not far at all from Israel. If you go on one of the trips that trail goes to when they go to Israel the next time, which might be further down than we think, they have, uh, what is it called? I can't remember the, the term for it, but it's high up on a mountain, And you can just look, and about five miles away in that view is the land of Syria. Right there. It's right there. So there's warfare all the time. Matter of fact, when we were there, we could hear bombs. We were in a coffee shop, and we could hear bombs. It was that close. Rezim, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel. That's northern Israel. Southern Israel is Judah. Northern Israel is Israel. Samaria, Israel. They came up to Jerusalem to wage wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So what is happening is northern Israel and Syria are joining forces... Because the power of that day was Assyria. They were the strongest power in military in the known world over Egypt, over everyone else. They were the power of that day. And so Syria and northern Israel were joining forces to fight Assyria. And so what they wanted from Ahaz who was in southern Israel, Judah. We just sang about the Lion of Judah. Christ was born in Judah, Bethlehem. These other two powers have an alliance. And they're trying to force Ahaz and Judah to join their alliance against Assyria. And they're, what they're telling them is if you don't join us 
and fight against Assyria, we're going to attack you. So let's just read that. I'll go up to Pika Pika, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So when the house of David, that's Judah, God's people, Jerusalem, it's called the house of David, city of the great king. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now, this is a king that God has put in place. Like King David, he wants him to be a warrior. He wants him to be a voice of faith for his people. But this king is going in the wrong direction. This king is weak. This king does not have the faith in Jehovah that God wants him to have. And so he panics. He's, he's dealing with fear, huge fear. He's having essentially a panic attack. So they're threatening that if you don't help us fight against Assyria, we're going to attack you. And what this guy really wants to do is join Assyria because they're more powerful. And so the thought of having to go against Assyria or be attacked by these other two alliances struck fear in his heart, which is the opposite of faith. We know that. And he panicked so much that his people panicked. And they all shook like the trees in a wind. Now, a little practical sidebar. When leaders panic, their followers panic. When a father, a dad, a husband, a godly man panics, his family panics. We're supposed to show calm and strength and courage in the Lord. Yeah, we are. Doesn't mean we're perfect. But I guarantee you, sir, if you start panicking and doubting, your wife's next. And then the kids, they'll start to panic. I heard a a flight attendant one time say to someone that was traveling, because there was a lot of turbulence on that particular flight, she said, well, you, you need not fear because as a flight attendant, if I'm calm and together, Everything is good because the pilots calm in together. But if the pilot starts to panic and I start to panic, then you can go ahead and panic because we're in real trouble now. (laughs) So if the one flying the plane is not confident and in fear and not trusting in the Lord, all the passengers will as well. That's exactly what's happening here. Their king was petrified, was not showing faith in Almighty God, and God's going to try to talk him out of it, and he can't do it. And so it is with us. As leaders, our trust needs to be settled with the Lord, and our family will follow with a sense of peace, if you know what I mean. 
Okay, so that's the situation. So the Lord uh, wants to see, he wants to test this king and see if this king has any belief or any remote trust in what God can do with this dangerous situation. So he talks to Isaiah, look at verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, and you and your, well, his son is Shir Jashub, your son, and go to the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's fields. These locations that are very specific, it's where the aqueduct is in Jerusalem, are still there. So I want you to go to the aqueduct where the water flows. That's their source of water. And I want you to meet them right where the pool begins. So the aqueduct went into a pool. There are several pools in Jerusalem. And I want you to say this to him. Bring your son with you. Now his son's name, as you can see it here, his son's name means, oh, it doesn't say here. Go out to meet your son at the end. Okay, it doesn't say right there. It means a remnant remains. So Isaiah's son's name, and Ahaz knew this, his name meant green shoot. There's hope. There will be destruction, but God will raise up his people again. That's what his son's name means. That's why I think the Lord said, bring your son. Because you're trying to encourage him. And when he looks at your son, he'll be reminded that it's not over, over. There's going to be discipline and punishment, but my people will reign forever. And so he brings his son, and this is what he said to him. So these are the mm, attributes of no faith or very little faith right here, the attributes. And we all dabble with them from time to time. If anybody here ever has anxiety at 2 o'clock in the morning... Yeah? Why is it always two? Okay, let's go on. Now say to him, here's a king whose knees are knocking. Be careful and be quiet. Calm yourself and listen. Don't overreact. Listen to the Lord. You have these obstacles in front of you. There's a lot of intimidation being told to you. There are bullies that are trying to strike fear in your heart. Calm yourself and listen. Be quiet. Which is really hard to do when we panic. By the way... Um, as far as those that have panic attacks, we hear of that always. Now, I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a physician, but I do a lot of biblical counseling and I know this much. One of the major causes for panic attacks is stress. Just stress. And so here the Lord is saying to someone who is 
driven by fear. Step back, get quiet, listen for the Lord. Calm your mind. Be careful and be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. So he's talking about these two kings that are in his face saying, you will join us or we will destroy you and you will fight with us against the most powerful army in the world who Ahaz had confidence in. Two smoldering firebrands. What that simply means, if you're camping and you have a bonfire going and you're throwing wood in there, they're two of the last final sticks that are almost completely burned out, that are ready to crack at any moment. God basically says, is these people that you're afraid of, they're brittle, they're burned out. Don't be afraid. I, your God, am a consuming fire. Don't be afraid of these guys. They're all talk. Bullies are all talk. And he says, don't be afraid also at the fierce anger, because Rezin, apparently the guy that ran uh, Syria, was, was a very angry person. No doubt was probably very, very vicious and killed many in a fit of anger. Don't let his anger rule you. I am with you. They're just a couple of burned out sticks that are ready to snap. I'm your Lord. I'm your God. Trust me. I taught on Sunday and I made a phrase. I said a phrase that sometimes trust is the last string we have to play that's left. Trust. God's asking this king to stop focusing on what he can see and actually trust with the eye of faith in what he cannot see. Because verse 5, Syria with Ephraim, these, these two powers, the son of Ramelia, has devised evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and terrify it. So their motive, their plan, their scheme is to intimidate God's people. They're out to intimidate because once people are afraid and they're scattered, they're very vulnerable and it's over. And then they're going to take over the country. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and terrify it, and let's conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So in other words, they're going to take over the town, the country, Judah, and put a puppet king in its place 
So the Assyrian king can still see that there's someone in rule there. It would just be a puppet king. Now God steps in. Look at the next verse. Thus saith the Lord God. Now he's talking to a king who has no confidence in his power and no trust in the Lord's heart or will. It's just not there. And the Lord's trying to prod him and test him and get him to believe. So the Lord God said, it shall not stand or come to pass. These two powers that you fear are going down. I am going to destroy them. You must hear me, Ahaz. I am in control of this situation. He says, for the head of Syria is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is resin. I know that doesn't mean a lot to you. He's just talking about the two powers. One of being northern Israel and the other one being Syria. He says, within 65 years, Ephraim... Israel will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So you got to take a stand. You're the king. Either believe me and take a stand. I put you in that position to lead my people according to my word. Now I'm looking to you and so are your people to take a stand. It starts with you. You're the king. Again, I like that phrase. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So for those of us, we could be up against an obstacle that really, really is challenging our trust in the Lord. You know, one of my favorite prayers in the New Testament is a father whose son was throwing himself into the fire. He had a demon. And uh, they called his disciples, and his disciples didn't know what to do. They couldn't pray the demon out. And so they ran to Jesus, and, and, and they brought Jesus, and the father said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Great prayer to pray. When you're feeling like you're losing it and you're weak and you just are not trusting, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. He says to him, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Anything. Ask for anything you want. And I will do anything you want. Any request that you ask of me, I will do. It could be as deep as Sheol, as deep as the depths of the earth, or as high as the heaven. Ask me for anything, and I will do it for you. What does he say? Look what he says. I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to a test. Excuse me? Your creator and your master is asking you to ask him for anything you want and you are telling God 
that you don't want to test him? That is a verse in Deuteronomy, so I think he was trying to be super spiritual and quote a verse back. But that's not the issue. God says, I'm willing to do and conquer and stand with you in this battle, so ask me for something. And he goes, no. That's because he had no faith. He put his, now listen to this, he put his confidence in the strength of the Assyrians rather than the Lord. He put his confidence in what he could see and what he can imagine and touch rather than the Lord. And so, you know, we do that. I take matters in my hands all the time. And it never goes well. I'm tired of waiting on the Lord. Certainly he wants me to step out and do this or that. He'll understand. Never works. Never works. And so he was putting his confidence in the power of a pagan army over what the Lord could do. Um, and he said, here then, O house of David, this is interesting, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? That's like you are the king and you keep complaining and whining about what you're afraid of. And you wear people down. They're looking to you for confidence and strength and you're wearing them down with your whining and your fear. Are you going to wear me down too? Don't tell me you can't do it. I'm telling you to ask me a question. Therefore, the Lord himself, now, he's turning his back on Ahaz right now. Essentially, the Lord is saying, you're pathetic. I've put you in control of my people. And I'm asking you as their leader to come to me in prayer. And you're not even willing to do that. You are pathetic. He turns his back on Ahaz now. And he says, I'm going to give a prophecy. And it's kind of twofold. It's a very familiar one. You've heard it before. We, we talk about it every Christmas season. It's a twofold prophecy. Look what he says next. Therefore, let me just say this. Therefore, because I can't count on you to fight for my people and to have faith in what I can do in your life. Because I can't count on you. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now we know that that's it's a twofold prophecy. Part of the prophecy was what the Lord was going to do right away. And part of the prophecy was years down the road when he sent Christ to Bethlehem, born of a virgin Mary. So there's two sides to this prophecy. And there are books in the Bible where there's dual meanings to prophecy. 
Daniel has them. Revelation has them. Usually the prophetic books have dual meanings. This has a dual meaning. The first meaning is I'm replacing you. And I'm going to raise up a young man, a boy, who is godly and who will teach my people, the remnant, to serve me. And this happened within a couple years. So he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And I don't want to get into the details because it's a little confusing, but... In that word, virgin, it can also mean young woman, not necessarily a virgin in this context, okay? So what he's saying is, not long from now, there's going to be a young Jewish woman, an unmarried young Jewish woman, and she's going to get pregnant, and I'm going to give her a son. And I'm going to raise up this son. It's going to be the line of David. And his name will be called Emmanuel. Meaning God with us. Not the Lord Jesus God with us. But a godly man who represents his people. The way that it hadn't been done for a long time. He is going to be the godly seed. And I'm going to raise up this boy. It was done differently in Bethlehem. Twofold prophecy. And he goes, we're done with your darkness. We're done with your wickedness. I'm wiping everything out as we're going to see in a minute. But I'm going to raise up a boy. Let's continue on. And he will represent me. He'll represent my remnant, the 10%. He's going to represent me and we're going to have Godly influence in the country again after the destruction. The stump, the shoot. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose good. And by the way, um, the age for a boy that they determined then, and in many cultures still do, were they reach or enter into manhood is what? Anybody know? 12. 12. Interesting, because the Lord Jesus went with his parents to Jerusalem, and he was 12. And he went into the temple and started teaching the, the, the rabbis in the temple. And they couldn't find him. Um, and... Joseph thought Mary had him, and Mary thought Joseph had him, and sounds like a common situation today, huh? I'm thinking about teaching a sermon on that um, entitled, I Thought You Had Him. (laughs) Anyhow, age of 12. So what he's saying is, I'm going to raise up this young boy. He shall eat curds and honey. Now, as we're going to read in the moment, the whole... Judah area was completely devastated. They had vineyards after vineyards after vineyards. They are all burned stumps to the ground. And so curds and honey have to be a food that is found separate from agriculture. 
Now we read last week, or it might be this, this text, there's still going to be some cows and some lands with very, very little food left to eat. And so this simply means that this boy that he's going to raise up to represent the remnant is going to be a boy of poverty. He's going to live in an impoverished state. He's going to eat curds and honey. And when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good, 12 generally is when we start thinking in terms of what's right and wrong. Age of 12. What's another word for that? The age of accountability. The age of accountability, according to the scriptures, 12. Okay? Um, and he'll refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, in other words, before he's even 12, this prophecy is going to come true even before he's 12, not very many years hence. The land whose two kings you dread, so these two kings that you fear, that have paralyzed you, that you dread, will be deserted. They'll be torched. They'll be gone. And the Lord will bring upon you and upon your, upon your people and your father's house in such days. So that's talking about the immediate prophecy. Not the one when Christ comes. The immediate prophecy. I'm raising this young man up. He's going to represent me and our remnant. He's going to bring back the word of God to our country. Because you haven't done it, Ahaz. I'm bringing someone back who will. And this kind of problem has not taken place since Judah and Ephraim departed, since Israel was split in half, and I don't know exactly when that was. Look at verse 18. I love this. So this is judgment's coming now. Judgment. Land is torched. Very few inhabitants. It's going to get worse. Listen to this. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt. So apparently, the headwaters of the Nile is known for having a lot of flies. Okay? Verse 18, In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. Interesting terminology. So apparently Assyria had a bee problem. And they will come and settle... This is in the land of Israel now. This is part of the judgment. You know, flies were a part of one of the plagues in Egypt, right? This is part of the judgment. You're not only going to lose everything because you walked away from me. You're not only going to lose everything. You're not only going to have very little food to eat. But I'm going to send an infestation to make you as uncomfortable as you've ever been in your life. 
I'm going to send flies and bees, and they're going to, what does he say? Verse 18. Where am I at here? I'm going to whistle for the fly, and I'm going to whistle for the bee, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and all of the pastures. So any place that you used to call safe or where you could hide, clefts of the rock, anywhere in the land... You're going to find flies and bees. There will be no safety for you. You will be famished and highly uncomfortable. Now, let's talk about flies for a minute. One of the things I'm looking forward to heaven about, I have a couple things that I'm looking forward to going to heaven for. Obviously, the main reason is so I can embrace the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to have a hard time letting him go. You know what I mean? When we get there. And one of the things that I am glad, and I look forward to it, it's like, Lord Jesus, come quickly, is there's not going to be any flies there. Do you know that? There's no flies in heaven. The two things that I don't want in heaven are not going to be there. Flies? And everything works and it never breaks. I can't wait because I'm not mechanical. And when it breaks, I don't know what to do with the thing. So flies and everything works. No flies. And everything works in heaven. Amen? Amen. Jesus, no flies, everything works. Well, I probably have some relatives there I want to see again. (laughs) So... This is a curse, man. This is a major curse. You know, I, I, I love the fall, but I think it's late September, early October. I go to Good Bean Restaurant. That's my annex office in Medford. And flies everywhere. I'm trying to do some biblical counseling, and guy's going like this. I go, I'm sorry, man. Okay. That's part of the judgment. Wherever they turn, there's going to be bees and flies, no agriculture, very few cattle, very few sheep. The only thing that, that they seem to have a lot of was milk. As a matter of fact, let's go on. Look at, uh, uh, well, actually go to verse 20. There's another part of his judgment. Very interesting. In that day also... The Lord will shave with a razor. The Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria. In other words, the Lord is going to use Assyria to completely humiliate and embarrass King Ahaz's kingdom. By, let's look at it, um, the head of their hair and of the feet, I would say the hair pretty much on the whole body, 
is going to be shaved as a judgment when the Assyrians come in and take over. First of all, at least in those days, a shaved head was a sign of mourning. And a sign of humiliation was that the beards were saved, taken off. The beards. Look at what they're going to do. They're even going to make it worse. And that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river, the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and will sweep away the beard also. They're going to shave all of the beards. Another translation said they're only going to leave half a beard. And they're also going to cut off their clothes from the waist down as slaves and prisoners to humiliate them and to mock them. They won't even have proper clothing. And they'll look weird too. Judgment. Man. Isn't this encouraging? Verse 21. Not over yet. And that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. Poverty. That's their staple for a long, long time. Milk and honey. And that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines, so you think the Rogue Valley's plentiful with vineyards, you should go to Israel. It's kind of like Italy. There's vines on almost every hill you look at in northern Italy. Um, where there used to be a thousand vines worth of a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and sheep tread. Bottom line, because it's judgment time for a people that rejected God, rejected the Lord, his patience went out. There's some samplings of what it's going to look like. The good news is that that's not the end of the story. After all of this destruction takes place, and his people are sent to a variety of places, uh, the Babylonians carried off, this story here, the Babylonians carry off God's people for 70 years. 70 years. And there's a psalm, I think it's Psalms 37, you should check it out, it's very interesting. They're, they're sitting along the waters in Babylon. The Babylonians are making them sing their sacred songs, and they refuse to. And they're weeping 
on the shores of one of the rivers in Babylon praying for the day that the Lord will give them another chance and send them back home to Jerusalem, which is where they were taken from. So thank God we have Christ. But he wants us to trust him and believe. He just does. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We know it's strong. It's a little odd terminology, but we got the point. We got the point that your mercies are fresh and new every morning, but they also run out when for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years people refuse to believe. We know it will run out in the future when you come back and you break through the clouds and we'll hear the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first and we'll be joined with those who are coming with the Lord in the clouds and so we will ever be with the Lord. But sadly for those who reject Christ and mock faith, unless there's repentance, Lord, we know they will not be with you in paradise forever. We pray for our family and friends right now who we're thinking of. Lord, we have a heart for them. Actually, we'd like to pray for this holiday season because we know that we see family we don't normally see, some of which are not believers. And we pray for them in advance. Just like, Lord, you reached down and grabbed a hold of our heart and our life and turned us around completely and totally to love you and to follow you by faith, we pray that you'll have mercy on our family and friends. And if it's appropriate for us to say anything this holiday season, just give us the courage and and open up our heart to share our story. So Lord, would you reach those in our life that you've placed around us to come to a saving faith? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.